Good morning, friends. Since we need God's help as we read the Bible, let's begin with prayer. Lord, we do not always find it easy to recognize your coming to us. Come, reveal yourself to us now. Meet us in the breaking of the bread. Set our heavy hearts on fire with love for you. And send us out on our way rejoicing. Do this for your namesake, Jesus. Amen. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I know that you know the words to this song, but do you know the profound experience of which it speaks? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was lost. Were you? Lostness looks different for everyone. For me, I was a preteen lost in self-absorption. I was preoccupied with myself, if I'm honest, preoccupied with my own problems, my own interests, my own self-centered desires. My capacity to love others in those days was shrunk by my constant attention to myself, what I looked like, whether others liked me or not. My pursuit of God was hindered by my pursuit of pleasure and my avoidance of pain at all costs. I was curved in on myself in those preteen years. That's exactly how the great 4th century theologian Augustine defines sin. Sin is being curved in on oneself. I once was lost, you see. <laughs> Were you? Are you lost still in some way? The good news is that God is very good at finding people. I once was lost, but by the amazing, liberating grace of God, now I'm found. This experience, I want to suggest, is the proper motivation for what has traditionally been called evangelism. Today we begin an eight-week sermon series entitled, I Once Was Lost communicating the gospel as an act of love. I know I can't keep things short, I'm sorry. <laughs> Eight passages of scripture will guide us through the complex and sometimes bumpy terrain of evangelism. For those of you who know little to nothing about evangelism, this series will provide a framework for understanding this crucial aspect of the Christian life. For those of you who think you already know everything you need to know about evangelism, this series will challenge you to rethink evangelism in light of the post-Christian context in which we now find ourselves. For all of us, we will gain some practical tips and next steps and hopefully a good deal of motivation for communicating the good news as an act of love for our non-Christian neighbors. From the outset, I believe it's necessary to define the term evangelism. Francis Adenay, author of a book called Graceful Evangelism, shares this conviction. She begins her book like this. The word evangelism 
evokes strong reactions from Christians and non-Christians in American society today. To many Christians, it is a word full of hope. Evangelism is the way to spread the good news that Jesus Christ came into the world to save us. To other Christians, evangelism is the E word. Evangelism is the way to alienate non-Christians and embarrass the church. To some non-Christians, evangelism is the way super-religious Christians push their views onto others. To still other non-Christians, evangelism is an irritating way people who haven't kept up with the times try to get others to follow an outmoded religious tradition. Given the wildly different reactions to the word evangelism that that word provokes in people today, I want to offer a simple definition, and I've already said it. To evangelize is to communicate the gospel as an act of love. I invite you to say that with me. To evangelize is to communicate the gospel as an act of love. This definition is intentionally broad, and we'll unpack it more fully throughout the series, but having it in front of us at the start will prove helpful, I think. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to keep the word evangelism because it's biblical, and I'm also trying to redeem the word because it's been misused in some contexts. So let's get started. We start with what's known as the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Jesus has just risen from the dead and already appeared to a few female disciples, but he has not yet appeared to the inner ring of the twelve, his twelve closest disciples, minus Judas the betrayer. Now these five verses called the Great Commission, they're charged with significance and they tell us of this encounter. I'll be reading from the International Standard Version today since it translates the grammar of the original Greek most accurately. The grammar, we'll soon discover, turns out to be very important for understanding our mission as the church. So hear now the word of the Lord. Then the eleven disciples went into Galilee to the hillside to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, though some had doubts. Then Jesus approached them and told them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, as you go, disciple people in all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you each and every day until the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Did you notice anything different from what you might be used to? There's a slight variation, but it makes a world of difference for how we understand Christian mission and the role of evangelism within Christian mission. Many popular translations of verse 19 say something like, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. But the ISV sticks closer to the original Greek text by translating it, Therefore, as you go, disciple people in all nations. Do you see the difference? 
go and make disciples versus as you go, disciple. Now, I know that most of us aren't English majors, and I know that you think that probably doesn't really matter in the end, but just stick with me for just a minute. I would not be making a big deal about the grammar if I didn't think it actually mattered for your life. What's at stake is what Jesus considers to be most important for the mission of the church. So look at the text again. The word go in the most popular translations is rendered as a command on equal footing with the command make disciples. Go make disciples. Two commands on equal footing. This leads one to believe that going and making disciples are two separate acts of equal importance. However, this turns out to be inaccurate when we observe the original Greek. In the original text, the word disciple has no equal. It alone is the central action. Jesus clearly intends it to be the most important word in the sentence, disciple. We know this because it is the only imperative verb in the sentence. In other words, it's the only command in the sentence. Literally, the text reads, going, or as you go, disciple all the nations. All the other verbs, I'm almost done with the grammar, stick with me. All the other verbs besides disciples, the other three action words, they are what's called participles. Does anybody remember the word participles from their grammar class? I know Kathy Nimmer does. Yeah, Larry hated every one of the participles. <laughs> participles have their own role to play, my friends. They describe more fully what the main verb is about. So let's put all this together. And if I lost you, now I hope to find you. Jesus is telling us to disciple all the nations. Discipling is what it's all about. That's our primary mission as Christians and as a church, to be disciples who disciple others. Discipling will certainly involve going, teaching, and baptizing. Each of those things tells us something about what it means to carry out the primary task of discipling. But without a doubt, according to Jesus' words in the Great Commission, Jesus wants the primary focus to be on discipleship. Here's why this is a big deal. Starting in the 1800s, the church in the West did not place its focus on discipleship. Instead, they placed the emphasis on going, and we still reap the consequences of that decision. So they interpreted the Great Commission to fit this agenda. The result is that the focus of Christian mission became sending people away, sending people called missionaries to foreign lands to preach the gospel. The further the distance one traveled away, the more confident we were that that person was truly a missionary. Meanwhile, many churches from the home base in North America, we had missions committees. You know these committees? Perhaps you served on one yourself. Their job was to facilitate communication between the foreign missionaries and the, and, and the local church that offered financial support. The result of all of this, even though there was much good that happened, the result was a narrow understanding of Christian mission a failure to grasp the fullness of what Jesus is calling each and every one of us to do 
in the Great Commission. The assumption for generations was that mission was what we did over there. It was the work of the privileged few, the serious, the the super-religious, with the rest of us financially supporting the work. The mission was concerned primarily with going and teaching about Jesus in other places in order to persuade the non-Westerner to believe the content of the Christian faith. Now, I've oversimplified the, the, the situation, but it's true enough. Again, I want to add that this wasn't all bad. <laughs> so, so much good came from the missionary movement that began in the 19th century with Go as the Great Commission proof text. Take my friend Santosh, for example. I would not have met Santosh at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan, had it not been for this emphasis on the word go. Santosh and I became acquainted during his year of study at Western. We still keep in touch, and I get monthly updates on God's work through his ministry in Odisha, a province on the east side of India. You see, back in the day, a courageous missionary came to a little Indian village to tell them about Jesus. The village received the gospel as truly good news. A generation or two later, Santosh was born into this village, which has become a Christian village, one of the very few Christian villages in the area. And now, Santosh spends his days in gratitude to God, traveling with his best friends from one Hindu village to the next, introducing these people for the very first time to the person and love of Jesus. So many people through his ministry, are being set free from their lost ways of living, free to love and free to live in the goodness of God's presence. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I'm free. Let me share just one example of this amazing grace through the ministry of Santosh, A ministry, again, that would not be in existence if it weren't for the foreign missionary movement. People going and teaching. This is a letter I received from Santos last October. He writes, The month of September has gone so quickly. We had a wonderful time visiting different villages, sometimes by walking. Alex and Stephen encouraged the believers from the Word of God and taught some local leaders. God is at work in Odisha, continually drawing people to himself. In one of the villages in Rayagada, in the Rayagada area, a young man, along with his friends, were planning to kill pastors Manoj and Lalit. But his conspiracy failed each time for some reason. As time came, he met these two servants of God, the one who had conspired to kill them, And he confessed the plan he had been making for a long time, but which failed each time. So, get this, he asked more about Jesus. And now he is a strong follower of Christ. Praise God for what God is doing in Odisha through Loam. Pastors Lalit and Manoj follow up with him every week. Can you imagine a weekly meeting with someone who once tried to kill you? but who now eagerly learns from you 
how to follow Jesus. It's remarkable, and it's hard for us to imagine that this is happening today. So you see, the missionary movement of the 19th century that was predicated on the emphasis go, it did some good work. It planted a good tree in Odisha, which continues to bear gospel fruit to this day. Thanks be to God for foreign missionaries who focused on going and teaching. Amen? Now, having not acknowledged the great benefits, we must also acknowledge the limitations. We must be honest about the past in order to understand the present so that we can move forward in the future. So here's the truth. An unintended consequence of the 19th century missionary movement was, the, was that the rest of us stayed, who stayed home, we failed to come to terms with all that God wanted to do through us. In fact, I think the contemporary church in America were still a bit confused about our mission in no small part due to the way mission was framed for so long. It's not to say God isn't doing great, great things through his church in America. God is. But our imagination for God's mission in our lives and in our churches, it's in need of renewal and expansion. So think about it. For so many generations, we talked about Christian mission exclusively in terms of going and teaching for most people, this meant staying and giving money as missionaries went and taught. The Great Commission was interpreted to fit this agenda. Now, many people have gone and many people have taught, but we find ourselves in a situation in our own country that we are now increasingly post-Christian. The percentage of people in America who identify as Christian continues to shrink. Meanwhile, the percentage of people especially young people, who identify with no religious affiliation, that number continues to grow. So while we love hearing stories like the one my friend Santos told, we can't help but wonder, why is our experience of mission and evangelism so different? I think part of the reason is this. We have failed to give proper attention to the central command that Jesus gave us in the Great Commission. Disciple. Disciple everyone. That is our mission. Be a disciple of Jesus yourself, and as you do this, disciple others into the ways of Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Therefore, go disciple. Remember, I, Jesus, am with you every step of the way. So let's say that we all agree that the primary mission is discipleship. That begs the question, what does it mean to disciple others? The reputable New Testament scholar Frederick Bruner defines it like this. To disciple means to make students of, bring to school, educate, or in modern English terms, to mentor, to apprentice. The word pictures students sitting around a teacher more than it does penitents kneeling at an altar. An educational process more than an evangelistic crisis. A school more than a revival. 
the word disciple says, in effect, work with people over a period of time in the simple educational process of teaching Jesus. So here's how we must rethink evangelism, I think. If we are to take seriously the truth of what Jesus says in the Great Commission, we must reframe evangelism for our times. We must broaden our definition to include at its center the task of discipleship to Jesus. As you go, disciple all the nations. Furthermore, we must understand discipleship for what it really meant when it first rolled off the lips of Jesus. It is not a command to become good church members or good citizens of our town, though these might be a result of it. Rather, the command to disciple is the command to learn how to actually do what Jesus taught. Stuff like loving one's enemies, living without worry, and seeking first the kingdom of God and his justice. That's how verse 20 functions to help us understand what it means to disciple. We've got disciple the nations in verse 20, and then our participle teaching, which helps us understand what it means to disciple. Verse 20, teaching them, Jesus says, to obey everything that I've commanded you. It's not just teaching them about what I commanded you, note. That's not discipleship. But teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded, the greatest of which is love. Of course, content and information must be a part of it. The content derives from the scriptures, especially Jesus' teachings. But the goal is not more information, The goal is not to become a master of Bible trivia. The goal is to actually learn in an increasing way how to live and love like Jesus in the course of one's daily life. After all, that's what the Bible says the Bible is for. All scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, the mission in the church is primarily about learning to live and love like Jesus. That's what we mean when we say discipleship. To those who already get this, I hope it sinks in even more deeply as we consider what Jesus means in the Great Commission. I suspect many of you get it, though you may not have ever said it like I just said it. For some of us, this is somewhat new or unfamiliar. For those of you who are in this camp, I hope you'll reasonably consider it. I do want you all to know that This isn't just my thing that I'm coming up with. This is how much of the church, including the Reformed Church in America, sees it. The RCA website reads, We are ordinary people on an extraordinary journey learning to love and serve like Jesus. That's exactly what I'm saying here. That's our mission, to learn to love and serve like Jesus. Now to do this, 
To fulfill the Great Commission, we must first enlist in the school of Jesus ourselves. This involves, at its core, this is important, this involves a very close and personal relationship to the teacher himself. Then, after a little while, we are able to live and talk with others, including non-Christians, in such a way that we teach them, too, how to live and love like Jesus, how to live without worry, how to pursue justice, how to live without fear in life. That, my friends, is evangelism. In a nutshell, that is how we communicate the gospel as an act of love. We disciple non-Christians in a way that's not unlike how we ourselves are discipled. We help them learn how to follow Jesus. That's evangelism. I want to make sure we understand this relationship between the disciple and the teacher. I don't want to give you the picture that Jesus just hands out assignments and we do them and then he grades them without much personal involvement at all. That's not the right picture of discipleship. Here's a better picture. It's the example of woodworking. If you want to become an excellent woodworker, you don't just go to Menards and pick up some wood and tools and then start senselessly pounding at the wood until you figure it out. No. If you want to be an excellent woodworker, what do you do? You go find Doug Howe, right? If you want to be an excellent woodworker, you go find someone else who is already an excellent woodworker, and then you learn from them, right? You have to become their apprentice. As an apprentice of a woodworker, you learn from your teacher who has mastered the craft of woodworking. The goal, the goal is that one day you would get so good at woodworking yourself that you would in turn be able to apprentice others, others who desire to learn the craft for themselves, but they don't have a clue where to start. Friends, that's discipleship. That's what we're talking about in our mission statement at Heartland when we say that we exist to be disciples who make disciples. That's what Jesus is talking about in the Great Commission. We are apprentices of Jesus. We want to be like Jesus, don't we? Maybe. I I thought we did. We want to be like Jesus, don't we? (laughs) Jesus, thank you. Jesus is the finest master of a craft called love. And I don't just mean the way we usually use the term in the romantic sense. Often when our culture talks about love, it's actually talking about the very opposite of love, which is lust. But what we're talking about is love, agape love, unconditional love, self-giving love, others-focused love, sacrificial love, divine love. What we are learning as disciples is how to love, how to truly love like Jesus, and how to love not just the people like us, but how to love all people, including people who are very different from us. That's why it's about discipling all the nations, which essentially means all people of all types and all stripes. That's the primary mission for the Christian, 
out of which everything else naturally flows, including evangelism. Now, to love is not merely to feel positive emotions about another person. To love is to will the good of another. You may want to jot that down. It's so different from what we usually think of in our culture when we use the word love. It's not to feel a positive emotion. To love is to will the good of another, to act for the good of another. Jesus, my friends, he's the best at willing the good of others. It's Jesus who came into the world to save sinners. It's Jesus who came so that others might have abundant life. It's Jesus who is God in the flesh, who came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. We are apprentices of this Jesus, which means we commit the rest of our lives to the task of learning how to live and love like Jesus. Amen? And I I really believe this is the best possible way we might choose to live our lives. Now, this takes time, as does any skilled craft, right? Doug, you didn't figure out how to be a great woodworker in a day, did you? (laughs) But this is what we're about. It's what we're learning. There is grace, be assured, abundant, overflowing grace. Our master, the one who's teaching us, he is incredibly patient with us as we learn. In fact, patience is part of what we're learning, but the goal is that we'd get better at the craft over time. As we sit under the master's teaching and as we walk in the master's presence, the goal is that one day we might become familiar enough with his craft of love that we quite naturally apprentice others, including those who are not yet Christians, to be disciples who make disciples. There it is. That's how we began to rethink evangelism. Now, I know this isn't new for a lot of you, but I hope you still have a lot of questions. We're lingering in this subject matter for a reason, so I'm going to uh, wrap this one up, but hold your questions for later. I'm going to wrap this week up in the same way that the Great Commission is wrapped up. From beginning to end, from left to right, like a curtain. The first verse and the last verse of our scripture passage, they frame all that Jesus has to say about our mission of discipling the nations. On the front end, and this is good news, on the front end, we notice that Jesus begins the Great Commission not with the commission itself, but with a declaration who it is that we are in relationship with as we carry out the mission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. That is the reason we can have such confidence and poise and grace as we become apprentices to Jesus and as we apprentice others. That is the reason we can have patience with ourselves as we wrestle with the slowness of the progress. 
Jesus, the one we're learning from, he is not only our master, but the master of the cosmos. As hard as it is to believe, Jesus is the chief executive officer of the universe, the CEO of heaven and earth. He's the one in charge around here. As we carry out our mission, may it comfort you to know that we are in league with the king. Contrary to what others are saying, it's actually Jesus who possesses the power, not the devil, not any political entity, not any corporate institution, not secularism, not you nor me. Jesus is in complete control of the world. He's got the whole world in his hands. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, and Jesus shall reign forever and ever, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Amen? That fact stands on one side of the Great Commission. Wrapping it up, wrapping it up from the other side, like a curtain, is an all-important reality. Remember Jesus' promises. I am with you each and every day until the end of of the age. As you learn how to live and love like Jesus, God is not standing from afar with a red pen in hand keeping close track of all your mistakes. That's not what God's doing. Far from it. God is with you. Through the power of the Spirit, by the grace of God, accomplished through the forgiveness of sins, Christ is in you. Jesus is with you, not with a red pen, but Jesus is with you, bearing the scars of a time when his own crimson blood was shed to prove that God's acceptance of you is not based on your performance. God's acceptance of you is based on his fatherly love for you. Jesus possesses all power and Jesus possesses you with his spirit of love. Therefore, we can say, go disciple all the nations. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May it be sweeter than the taste of honey to our lips. May it inspire us to live in love like Jesus. May these words be more than words. Give us the spirit of Jesus. Amen.